Hey y'all, it's Tommy. This episode of Southbound is posting right in the middle of Thanksgiving week. If you're pre-turkey or post-turkey, either way, we're glad to have you. This episode is a replay of our show from a year ago with Shay Serrano. Shay was already blowing up when we had this talk. His book, Hip Hop and Other Things, was about to become his fourth New York Times bestseller. Now he has two TV shows in the works. Primo, a series based on his life growing up amongst a group of uncles, and Neon, a series set in the world of reggaeton music. Shea also writes stories that he drops online from time to time. The latest is called The Abduction, which has the tagline, They wanted him on their spaceship until they got him on their spaceship. In this episode, we talk about his upbringing, his unorthodox path to becoming a writer, and his army of do-gooders on Twitter. This was so much fun. Here's Shea Serrano. This is what they tell you when you're growing up in that neighborhood. They're like, hey, um, do you want to, when you finish high school, I was the first one in my family to graduate high school. They're like, hey, when you finish uh, high school, do you want to go do irrigation with your uncle? Is that your job? Or do you want to go do, uh, you want to go paint houses with your other uncle? Or do you want to do tile with your other uncle? Or do you want to work at the tire shop with your other uncle? Like pick one of those four options. They don't tell you, hey, you guess what? You can like watch TV and listen to music and then like say how you feel about it and we'll give you money. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Author Shea Serrano has done the world a valuable service. He's proven that it's possible to use Twitter to do good. He and his followers have given hundreds of thousands of dollars to everyone from needy college students to people who just need help paying the light bill. When he's not doing that, he's writing and podcasting for the sports and pop culture site called The Ringer. And when he's not doing that, he's writing New York Times bestsellers. His new book, which just came out Tuesday, is likely to be his fourth to make the bestseller list. It's called Hip Hop and Other Things, and it's not only thoroughly entertaining, but it serves as a textbook of sorts on the musicians who have made hip hop such a force. That textbook thing makes sense, because Serrano used to be a teacher. How he became a writer? Well... That's a story you should stick around for. Here's our conversation. So I wanted to ask, first of all, about Southern rap, because this is a podcast sort of about the South. Your book has an introduction from Bun B from Texas. Yeah, you've got a whole chapter on Missy Elliott. you got a chapter on Young Jeezy. You know, you come back and talk about Outkast and Ludacris and all those Atlanta all the Atlanta rappers over and over Mm -hmm. in the book. I wonder if you think there's some sort of unifying theory of Southern rap, or is there some thread that links all those different kinds of artists? Well, there's, there's definitely a thread that links everybody together because if you are, if you live in the South, it doesn't matter if it's like Texas, Atlanta, wherever, like Louisiana, you're living like the same version or a version of the same kind of existence. You know what I'm saying? It's the, it's the same thing with like 
New York rap like has a thing that connects it. East Coast rap, or excuse me, West Coast rap has a thing that connects it. Like the the so the South is like to put to put a term on it. I think the one that Pimpsey came up with, where he described it as country rap tunes. I think that's perfect. It's like a little bit slower uh, until it doesn't need to be. It's a little more methodical until it doesn't need to be. Uh, it's a little more excitable. Like it's just to me, it feels a little bit more emotional. But I get. But that's probably because this is where I grew up and like that's who I have been listening to my whole life. So I just have a, a, a personal connection to to that kind of rap, you know. So I want to ask about that sort of stuff you've been listening to your whole life. You have a great story in this book about freaking out when you were like 11 years old, when Vanilla Ice showed up in the yeah, yeah, yeah. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movie. Was, was he like your introduction into hip hop or was there other stuff that you heard around the same time? It was probably him and MC Hammer. MC Hammer, MC Hammer was first and then Vanilla Ice comes a, right around the, the same time. But that was, so that's the early nineties. And that's when they were doing, that's when they were like, okay, we can make money off of this. The record labels were figuring it out. And MC Hammer's like the godfather of, of like commercialism rap or pop rap or whatever you want to call it. So MC Hammer would be the first one and then Vanilla Ice. And then I was, I was as you mentioned, the kid I was, you know, nine, 10, 11 years old, whenever this was happening, they were very much making rap for nine, 10 and 11 years old at the time. Like you can't touch this. It's like a kid, a, a song that a, a kid would like, or Ice Ice Baby, that's a song that a kid would like. And then they leaned into it. MC Hammer did the one with the Adams Family, um, like that. Oh, there's two things I enjoy, Ninja Turtles and Vanilla Ice. So there's two things I enjoy. So as a kid, yeah, you, as a kid, you're not like in the record stores digging through the crates. That's not how you get introduced to a thing. You get introduced to the biggest, broadest version of it possible. And then as you get older, you start to whittle down and like find more specific stuff that you care about or like even more than that. But yeah, those two for sure were like, this is what rap is. When I, when I was a kid, when I was nine years old, 10, this is, the, this is the best rapper on the planet. He has to be. He's rapping with the Adams Family. Now I don't mind being a friend and showing a little bit of flavor. But Wednesday, Bugsley, Gomez, Festa, man, them some strange neighbors. So what, what was the first stuff you heard that was more like grown up? You know, the stuff that, that maybe you still, you might still listen to now. Yeah. So my, the people that we live next door to, they had a couple of kids and their oldest daughter was right around my age. She might've been a year younger or so, but she had a cassette of We Can't Be Stopped by Ghetto Boys. And so I remember finding that, and this, and this was right around the, I was, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, we were, I'm picturing the house we were in, which means I was right around that nine, 10, 11 years old range. And she was like, hey, listen to this. And I just remember looking at the cover and that's the one when Bushwick Bill is in the hospital bed because he just shot his eyeball out of his head and just being like, what is going on here? What is this? Like, is this real? Is this fake? Is this like a horror movie? Headlight, I can't sleep. I toss and turn. Candlesticks in the dark. Visions of bodies being burned. Four walls just staring at it. I'm paranoid sleeping with my finger on the trigger. 
My mother's always stressing I ain't living right. But I ain't going out without a fight. This is like a whole other part of the planet that I didn't even know existed. Uh, and then any, those moments are always cool because like the world opens up a little bit. And I remember that happening with, with that tape in particular. That video for Mind Playing Tricks on Me is still, Ooh, come on. Come still on. the scariest video come on. that's ever been on MTV. That's, a, that's an accurate statement, Tommy. So what was it, do you think, or what is it about hip hop that sort of moved you so much when you heard it? So it's probably a combination of, of things because what ends up happening, I think every person goes through a version of this when you're a kid and in the beginning, you're just like, whatever my mom and dad are doing, I'm going to do that thing. And then you start to get a little bit older and then you're like, well, I want to do whatever they're not doing. And so my dad, we were, we were, we were living in San Antonio at the time. Both of my parents are, are, are Mexican. So my dad is listening to like a lot of Tejano music, like, Chalino Sanchez, like Corridos type stuff, uh, La Tropa F, like uh, classic rock as well. Like that's, if he, if he was turning his radio on, that's what was coming out of the speakers. And my mom was, she's from Michigan originally. So she was listening to a lot of Motown type stuff. And like coming up, that's what I have in, in each of my ears. And then when you, when you get to like right around 12 or 13 or so, you really want to like, I want to find what my own thing is. I want to, I want to have something that's separate of them. And this is this just so happens to like line up perfectly when rap is becoming this gigantic force in the early '90s. You know, Dr. Dre shows up in in 1992 with with uh, the Chronic, nothing but a G thing, and it was like he took all of the like hard edge stuff that the that gangster rap was doing, like N.W.A. was doing in the late '80s, and then he like ran it through this filter that made it seem more like a like a party and like fun and like we're gonna hang out. The the you talk about the video for for mind playing tricks. I mean the video for nothing but a G thing. They're like riding around in the car. They're at the park. They're at a barbecue. They're playing volleyball, house party. I was like, oh, that seems like fun. That seems accessible. And so you start listening to that, and it just sort of it just felt like it felt like you were at the beginning of something. Even though I had no idea that rap had been around by that point for well over a decade, but it felt like you were at the beginning of a thing. Uh, they, the way that they talked about it on TV, it was this new, exciting, like, have you heard this? Check this out. It seemed like every month some new rapper was coming out and doing a thing that had never been done before. Like you go, like you go from a tripod quest into the chronic, into doggy style, into, into um, Wu-Tang Clan, 36 Chambers, into Illmatic, into Ready to Die, into All Eyes on Me. Like, every every month and like a big thing was coming out that was changing rap forever and it was just so much fun to watch it happen and you're watching it on tv and you're like this is the coolest thing i've ever seen i love i love the way that listening to this makes me feel sometimes they would talk about stuff that when i would go outside and like look at my neighborhood we grew up on the south side of san antonio a lot of the stuff they were saying was like oh i have a version of that here too like this felt like it was for for us you know for me the stuff that they were talking about, uh, that's really, I think, you know, the combination of all of that equals up to you falling in love with a thing. I want to ask about kind of what the rest of your life was like at the time. Um, you know, you talk in the book 
about, you know, being a food stamp kid and wearing like knockoff designer clothes. Uh, yeah. And then I yeah, was, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. the kid who wore like the, <laughs> I had the knockoff Izod's from like, with like had the little fox on it. <laughs> the little, there was one with a dragon or something. So a lot of that, yeah. a lot of that hit home with me. And in the book, you mostly joke about it. Um, but I'm wondering whether there were parts of that life that didn't feel like a joke to you. Not, not really, because so if you grow up in a house without money, they, like that's a thing that you deal with. But oftentimes, if you do that, you live in a neighborhood where everybody else is sort of doing the same thing. So it just seemed like, oh, this must be what life is like. You have no idea. I didn't have any idea until I left out of the neighborhood to like go to college. And then I got to college. My neighborhood was almost exclusively Mexican. Every room that I walked into, every store that I went in, everybody looked like me and sounded like me. And was we were all like hiding our food stamps in our pockets, waiting to pay at the cashier when nobody was was looking. Uh, and then you find out everybody's doing it and you're like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Like, what, that, like that's funny. Um, but then I go to college and it's like, everything gets flipped upside down. The school, there's 15,000 kids. I think like a hundred of them there were, were Latino um, or Mexican, a version of whatever. Um, so it, all of a sudden I was like the opposite of what I normally was. And then I started, oh, like, oh, your, oh, your parents graduated high school? Oh, that's crazy. Or like, oh, you didn't have somebody in and out of jail in your life growing up? Oh, that's crazy. Like you realize the world is way different than this aquarium that you were growing up inside of at the time it was like it didn't seem like terrible it just seemed like nor a, a normal thing and then also like it it's really helpful that both of my parents were there they were they were like we didn't have a bunch of stuff in the house but the one thing that you did have was like some people to look out for you it didn't seem terrible then it doesn't seem terrible now it just seems uh different were you writing stuff at all back then other than like you know school assignments Oh, come on, Tommy. No, of course I wasn't. There's no way. There's no way. I had no idea that this was a job you could do. Nobody tells you that. This is what they tell you when you're growing up in that neighborhood. They're like, hey, um, do you want to, when you finish high school, I was the first one in my family to graduate high school. And they're like, hey, when you finish uh, high school, do you want to go do irrigation with your uncle? Is that your job? Or do you want to go do, uh, you want to go paint houses with your other uncle? Or do you want to do tile? With your other uncle or do you want to work at the tire shop with your other uncle like pick one of those four options they don't tell you hey you guess what you can like watch tv and listen to music and then like say how you feel about it and we'll give you money they don't tell you that i have no idea that that was a thing so when did you figure out that it could be a thing not necessarily that you know figure out the moment you started to do it but when did you realize that somebody could do it I didn't realize that somebody could do it until I literally Googled work from home jobs when I was trying to find a way to make extra money. And I was teaching full time and coaching full time. So I had like a small window of hours I could work. Yeah. Could you, could you, I, I think a lot of people who listen to this, this sort of podcast dream about doing something like, like you did or uh -huh. dream about having they, something bigger than what they're doing now. Could you just sort right. of describe what happened to you and, and how you became a writer, basically? Okay, so so the, the fastest version of the story is I was a middle school teacher. My wife was a middle school teacher. We both thought, like, this is the job that we're going to have for 35 years, and then we're going to retire, and we're going to be, like, part of the community and this whole thing. 
Um, but then when uh, she got pregnant, she was pregnant with twins very early on in the pregnancy, like month three, month four, she had some crazy complications. And they were like, well, you can't work anymore because if you work, babies are going to come out early and like, it's going to, this, this is not good. So we went from being two people living on a, two teacher salaries to now we're about to be four people living on one teacher salary. So I was making, you know, at the time, 1100 bucks every two weeks or something like that. So I'm like, okay, well that minus like rent, which was 1600 bucks. Well, there goes most of our money right there. Uh, car note, cell phone, food, electricity, the numbers on this side of the ledger on the red side were way bigger than the other side. I said, okay, she's not going to be able to work for several months. We, I have to figure out a way to make this extra money. So then I'm applying at like Target, um, various grocery stores, various restaurants. And each time they would say, well, you can't work when we need you to work because you're busy from 6 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. already. So we can't hire you. And I said, all right, well, I need a thing I can do. I would Google work from home jobs. Writer was one of those jobs. So I started reading about it. I said, well, this seems interesting. It says all you need here is the internet and a computer. I guess I'll try that. And then I just read a bunch of stuff, like how do you become a writer? How do you, uh, then I started learning about like, oh, this is what an editor does. This is how you pitch an editor. I was making all of the mistakes you could make in the beginning, but I was just uh, putting up as many shots as I could. Like I'm calling newspapers and be like, hey, I'm a new writer in town. Do you need anybody? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, but I, do, I just, I did that enough that I was able to like wiggle my way into a couple of spots, finally talk somebody into to letting me like cover some stuff. And once I, I once I like wrote a, a thing for this little tiny neighborhood newsletter called the Near Northwest Banner is the very first place I ever wrote. It was a, it was like a, a husband and wife printing up a, a thing in their garage, like with their hand, like crank. Printing like, like an old, like a Mimeo machine, like the, uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and her name, I never forget her name. Her name was Frances and Frances paid me $15 to write about the Texans, the Houston Texans. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. Definitely. And I wrote a thing and then she said, okay, cool. I need another one for like two more weeks from now about the Astros. I said, cool, I got you. And then once I did that, I took those to the Houston press, which is like the alt weekly in Houston. And I said, Hey, look, I'm a real writer. Can I write for y'all? And it took a while, but eventually they let me write for them. And then after I got those, I did a bunch of that. And then I took that from the Houston press to like uh, LA weekly. And I'm like, Hey, LA weekly, look, I'm a real writer. Can I write for y'all? And it took a while, but they let me in. And then I took that to MTV and I'm like, MTV, look, I wrote for LA weekly. I'm a real writer. And then they were like, okay. And then I took that and I was like, Hey, ESPN, look, I wrote for MTV. I'm a real writer. And I just kept trying to work my way up the, up the ladder. Uh, and eventually like, you know, you catch a few lucky breaks and somebody like, like, uh, like Bill Simmons notices and he puts that golden thumbprint on your forehead and then everything changes after that, you know? When along that path, you know, you talked about going to all these places and saying, hey, I'm a real writer. When did you actually feel like a real writer? I didn't, I honestly didn't feel like a real writer until 2015. So that was seven years later or something like that, because that was when I left my job as a teacher to try and chase down writing as a full-time career. Um, I got like a, I had a part-time writing contract and that was cool. But then I got a full-time writing contract and it was like, oh, I don't have to like spread myself all over anymore. I have a home base that are paying me enough that I don't have to do multiple jobs. When that happened and I was able to pay all of 
our bills with writing money, then I felt like, oh, this must be what it means to be a real writer. And then I signed that deal. I signed that, uh, I quit my teaching job in June. I started in July. And then in October of that same year, just three years, three months later, they closed the place down. And then, and, and then I felt like a real writer. Because I just was, I was like, oh. say, that's when you, be- that's that's when you become knew. a real writer. When they shut the place they down. shut it down. Yeah, they, they normally don't shut the school down, Shay. No, yeah. But the publication, <laughs> yeah. Um, so can you see things from like your teaching career that sort of carried over into your writing career? Absolutely. I think that's the most important thing of my writing career is that I did teaching for nine years. Because essentially, it's the same job. In, like, in that when you're a teacher, you have some information that you need to get into the heads of your students. That's what you have to do. That's what you're there for. And it's information that's dictated by somebody else. You have like standardized objectives and teaks and all of this, like all of this stuff. But basically when the kids walk into your class at the beginning, at the end of the day, by the, by the time they walk out, they need to know like whatever, what I taught science. So they need to know like what the parts of an atom are. They need to know what a proton is, what a neutron is, and what an electron is, and what a nucleus is, and how they all fit together, and what they do, and what they mean. They need to know that when they leave. Writing a book, writing an article, it's the same exact thing. When you open the book and you start a chapter, by the end of it, I just need for you to have some information in your head, right? And so I have to figure out a way to present it in a manner that is interesting, a little bit compelling, a little bit, and that will, like, sticky a little bit so that it goes in there. You know, you should be excited to like read a chapter or excited to like learn a lesson. Like that's how it works in that classroom. If you can't make the kids care about it, then they just don't care about it and they don't learn it. But all of that stuff that I was doing in teaching, I find myself doing it in writing as well. It's super, super, super helpful. The reason I ask this question is your chapters to me are the, the pieces of your books. And, and the stuff you write for The Ringer and, and a lot of that feels very much, and this is a compliment, by the way, like a high school essay. Yeah. Like there's a beginning where you say, here's what I'm going to mm-hmm. talk about. And then you go to the middle and you talk about it. And then you get to the end and you say, like, here's what I talked about and here's the conclusion. It's like what I remember being like bingo, bango, bongo. Yes. You know, and it's that very simple structure, but then you hang all this weirdness on it. it whatever you're whatever you're putting in there, but it's built on a, on a really simple and sturdy framework. Is that sort of intentional? That is exactly what I'm trying to do every single time I sit down to, to write a thing. And I do it exactly how you're describing it. At the beginning, I say, here's what I'm going to tell you. By the end of this, you're going to know this. And then I have to figure out a way to tell you that thing in that interesting or compelling or sticky manner. And then by the end, when we're done, I say, see, I told you what I was going to tell you. And then you're like, you, you did, you did. And, and that's super, super um, important, especially when you're working on a thing like this, because oftentimes the stuff that I'm writing about, it's not like numbers-based facts. These are all objective opinion. I'm writing about music. I'm telling you about like stuff that I like. There's not going to be any person in the world who picks up the, the book and agrees with every single thing in there. But that's not the point of the book. It's not for me to get you to agree with it. The point of the book uh, is to, when you read it, it should activate something in your head that makes you go like, oh, I like, I know what my version of this is. 
So if I have, by the time we like, if I write an essay about this album is better than that album, even if you don't agree with it, by the time you get to the end, you see how I arrived there. And then you're like, well, I, I get why he picked this. I don't agree with it, but I get it. And I kind of feel this way about another thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what's going on here. When we come back, Shay Serrano talks about how he became an accidental philanthropist and how it reminds him of his old day job. This is a, me trying to recapture like a thing that you get to experience when you're a teacher. When you're in the classroom, you have the chance every single day to do like a meaningful thing. That and more I had on Southbound. Before we get back to today's episode, I want to take just a second to let you know about the treasures we've got in the Southbound archives. We've done more than 100 episodes now. By my rough calculations, you could drive all the way from Charlotte to San Francisco, existing on nothing but Southbound episodes, plus the occasional snack. So there's bound to be something you love. Interested in music? I've done episodes with Ben Folds, Rhiannon Giddens, Anthony Hamilton, Patterson Hood, and many, many others. Comedy? How about Roy Wood Jr., Fortune Feimster, and Nate Bargatze? Sports? Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Paul Feinbaum. Fashion? Andre Leon Talley and Billy Reed. Plus so many others, from Chef Vivian Howard, to writer Rick Bragg, to actress Brooklyn Decker. I also talked to many Southerners who might not be as famous, but are doing important work. From whale watcher Clay George to hip-hop scholar Regina Bradley. You can dive into the archives by following Southbound on any of your favorite podcast providers or by going to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. Enjoy the journey. And now, back to my conversation with Shay Serrano. You've built this thing on Twitter that, you know, it's called the FOH Army. I'll let people look up and see what that means. <laughs> but where where you just basically, you know, you put out the word for something and either you will, like, you having problems with your bills this week, let me know, I'll Venmo, Venmo you some money. Or you'll assemble this army to donate to charity or to pay somebody's bills or something. And I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how that first started for you and how you got the idea that you could actually get these people pointed in the direction of something good. It, ve- it very first started, this is going to sound like the dumbest thing. It very first started as a joke. When I mentioned I was, I was working at this, I was working at Grantman. I signed my deal in July and October they closed, but, but because the contract that I signed was for a year, they had to pay me for the year. ESPN did. And they were like, hey, you can either, we'll let you out of the contract and you can go work someone else, somewhere else, or we'll just pay you every two weeks, but you're not going to do anything. And I said, well, that second option to me sounds way better. It's like a seven-month paid vacation, <laughs> eight-month paid vacation. I'll do that. So I did that. And, you know, three weeks in, I was super bored. And so I hit up Arturo, the, the illustrator for all my books. And I said, hey, do you want to do like a newsletter or something? This is in 2015, 2015, uh, yeah. Um, and he said, I said, I'm bored. And like, I want to stay sharp and we're probably going to do a book soon. Like, let's do this. And he said, okay, cool. And so we did it and we were just doing it to practice. 
And over the course of like a couple of weeks, we went from zero subscribers to like 30 something thousand subscribers. And because of that, we were having to pay a couple of hundred bucks a month to like send the thing out. And I made a joke on Twitter one day about it. And then a bunch of people started being like, hey, let me send you like a dollar or $2 to cover the thing. And I said, well, I, I don't need you to do that because I have a job and they're paying me. It's not like I don't have a job. After like enough weeks of people asking to do that, we put a donation button into one of the newsletters. It goes out. I forgot that we had even done it. And then my phone is just like buzzing, buzzing, buzzing the next morning when it goes out because I'm getting like Venmo alerts. Hey, somebody saying you three bucks or 50 cents or whatever. And it was like, oh, shit, I forgot we did this. I looked it was like a couple thousand bucks in there. And I said, well, what you let's just you want to just give this away? I was talking to Arturo. And he said, well, yeah, if we do that, there's this place in Dallas called the Genesis Women's Shelter, which is where uh, Arturo's mother was in an abusive relationship. So she took him and her, his brothers out of the house. And like, that's where they stayed at the women's, the, the women's shelter. And so he's like, Hey, this place, place means a lot to me. And this is where they, I, I got my first art supplies here. Let's give them the money. And I said, that sounds great to me. So we did that. And then we like posted uh, pictures of the receipts to the next news, newsletter and on Twitter and said like, Hey, this is what we did with the money. That was the very first time we did it. And then everybody lost their mind about it. Oh, this is so great, great job. And then a couple of weeks later, we like did another donation button and they're like, well, where are you donating it to this time? And it just became like a thing we were associated with from then going forward. And then now at this point, several years later, uh, it has just gotten bigger and bigger every year. So we are at you know five or $600,000 of just cash that has been donated to either nonprofits or just people directly. Uh, a lot of it was happening over the over the course of the pandemic when people were losing their jobs, but it was just all like just off of this silly little thing that we were doing because we were because we were bored, you know. And you have like the Shea Serrano scholarship now, right? Oh man, we got a we got a bunch of scholarships. Got it. We got that one. We got the Laramie Serrano scholarship. The goofiest one that we did. Oh my God. Okay, it's called it's called the the Buster brought me back scholarship. It's a line from the Fast and the Furious. Yo, Dom, why'd you bring the buster here? Cause the buster kept me out of handcuffs. He didn't just run back to the fort. The buster brought me back. That another, we just, again, we just did this as a joke. Oh, haha, we should do a scholarship and name it after this and like pay off the senior years of some students or whatever. Hey, hey, this is a college campus in San Antonio called UTSA. Um, and so they like, I made it as a joke and then they let me do it. They like actually officially called it that scholarship. The Buster brought me back scholarship. The Buster brought me back scholarship. <laughs> just again, as a joke, we're just doing goofy shit just cause we're like bored or whatever. And, and yeah, it just keeps on like, it's been really cool to watch it happen. A small percentage of it is my money, like a very small percentage of it, but mostly it's from everybody else. Just like. Voltroning up every so often and being like, here's, you know, like a fire hose for two hours of just like money spraying at a thing. I'm sure you know that, and I'm sure you probably had some business people tell you that, you know, you, you have this thing where you can make a lot of money for yourself doing something like this. And I'm wondering what, what has led you to instead sort of point in the other direction and, and give to all these other places. 
Well, the, so here's the thing, like I still am making money for myself, but it's just, it's not through that. It's through the, through my books or whatever. Cause I could be like, Hey, here's the book, go buy the book. And then some people go buy the book. Like it's, it's not um, like, I don't want it to sound like I'm just being totally selfless and I'm, I'm not gaining off of this. You know, part of, part of the other part of this is like, I have a big following and I can like lean on them when I have a new project that's coming out. But as far as it's like, trying to make the other stuff happen or trying to help out whenever we can. Uh, people ask me that question a bunch. And I think the best answer that we've settled on so far is, is this is just like, this is a me trying to recapture like a thing that you get to experience when you're a teacher, when you're in the classroom, you have the chance every single day to do like a meaningful thing. You can watch it happen right in front of your face. You can see it when a kid like, you, when a kid like feels better about themselves or about their place in the world, you watch it happen. And you don't have that when you're writing. I just sit in my office all day by myself and send some tweets and like write some stuff into a Google doc. And that's, and that's it. Writing. This is a line that I always use. Writing is really good for my ego because like people want to interview me and they want to like tell me how funny I am or whatever, but writing, uh, teaching was like good for my heart. It just made me feel like a better person. And so any of the philanthropy stuff that we do, it's just me chasing that feeling. I miss that part. I miss that part of it because I don't have access to it anymore. So it's like, if we can like raise a bunch of money for, for a nonprofit or whatever, I feel like good for the day. I feel like, yeah, we sent them like 15,000 bucks and they were able to do whatever. It feels good for a little while. So that's, you know, that's the main reason. I don't want to let you get out of here without asking about this TV show that I've, I've heard about off and on that um, might be happening based on your family, right? With uh, Michael Schur from Parks and Rec and The Good Place and all those places. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I met, I met Mike um, several years ago. I had this idea for, for a TV show. Uh, and again, this is like a version of what we were talking about before. I went to dinner, me and Laramie, my wife were sitting there talking. I was like, hey, I wanna kind of do a TV show what do you think of this? And she was like, well, how about this? And we were going back and forth. And then we settled on this idea. Uh, that's like a version of like, kind of what it was like for me growing up. Is it? Uh, my mom is the only sister and there's a, a family of like six brothers. One of them passed away. So it's just five now, uh, but she was the center and they were like all very protective of her. And then I was the first kid that was born into the family. She was just, she was a teenager at the time. And when I was coming up, I had like this wall of uncles around me who were protecting me from, from everything in the universe, it felt like. And so the, the TV shows, of, that's basically the story. You've got this teenager who is a junior in high school and he's got these five uncles and they're all trying to be like the father figure in his life. And they all act a little bit differently. And there you go. So that's what Mike and I went out and pitched. And then we sold it to ABC. This is back in 2000. 17 and then we worked on the script and we turned it in and then eventually they ended up passing on it and then it just sort of disappeared for a while and then during the pandemic I got an email from this guy and he's like hey do you still want to do that thing remember the thing from a while ago and I said yeah if like if you and Mike are still involved I would love to do the thing and then it came back to life and then we pitched it again and you know hopefully one day it gets made but if not it was like a cool thing so I'm gonna close by asking you one of the questions 
or a question that maybe is similar to some of the questions you have in your books. So your your story is sort of a rags to riches story. It's not a gangster story or anything like that. Not at all. But it is it is a narrative, and hip hop is at least partially about the narrative. If I guess the question I want to ask is, who would you want if you could pick somebody? Who would you want to wrap your story? Oh, I could pick anybody out of from any time ever. You pick anybody you want. And they're telling a version of my story. Well, you know what I got to do? So so this thing happens. Said so when you're a kid, you'll probably remember, you remember this. You remember doing this when you were a kid. But you have your like little friend group. It's like four or five, six kids. You grow up together and you... I'm watching it happen with my sons right now. They've got four friends that they met in sixth grade and now they're grade nine and they're all a little bit bigger and goofier, but they've been together for a few years and they've established themselves into a, into a pecking order of sorts. We'll call, this, we'll call this the Benny the Jet hypothetical, right? In every group of friends, there's a Benny the Jet. This is our best, this is our best person. And if you run across another group of kids, you're like, hey, your best guy against our best guy in a foot race, uh, who could throw a football the furthest, who's better at basketball, who knows more about the, you know, your best guy versus our best guy. And uh, for me and my like little Southern rap universe, Bun B is my guy. That's my, that's my first pick of if I'm, if I'm competing with somebody else in a thing, well, here's our best guy. You bring your best guy and let's see who's better. I would, I would absolutely pick Bun B to like tell the story that needs to be told. Um, I would, I would love that because that's what he's, that's what he does. Like that's his whole thing. I mentioned Ride and Dirty earlier. Um, like that's what he does on the album is he tells the story of, of this, like a period of his life here do it would be super boring to do mine because like what exciting thing has happened to me not not much of anything but just straight skill Uh, i trust his ear for beats i trust his pen i trust his ability to deliver it in a compelling way give me bun b that's my pick one quick note that tv show that shay mentioned in our interview A couple of days ago, it got the official green light. It's called Primo, and it's going to air on IMDb TV. Shea Serrano might generate more goodwill than anyone else on the internet. He's a delight on Twitter. He has a secret email club that's just as fun. And as you could tell, he's a tremendous podcast guest. But I think the way to understand Shea is to step back from his words and think about his actions. He makes people laugh. He helps people in need. He shows others how to be kind. He is a living example of how to work and think your way out of tough circumstances. I hope you noticed the warmth in his voice when he talked about his years as a teacher. His paycheck is bigger now than when he was helping middle schoolers understand the parts of an atom. But in a lot of ways, His job hasn't really changed. He's still teaching. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our producer is Joni Deutsch. 
Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where each episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening. Who do you pick? I, 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 don't know. I want to know who you pick. Who's your best guy? My key rap period was, I guess it's, it, you know, the, when I was the deepest into it was sort of early, late high school, early college for me. Mm-hmm. And that was Run DMC. That was, oh, yeah. you know, Public Enemy. That was, 88, that was sort of, 1988, baby, fir- let's go. Not, not the first wave, but, but like, the first big wave, yeah, right? Yeah. And um I you know, like you like you, my story is is pretty boring, but the voice I hear when I think of hip hop is still Chuck D. Caught you looking for the same thing. It's a new thing. Check out this. I bring a older rope below the level because I'm living low next to the base. Come on! Turn up the radio. They're claiming I'm a criminal. But now